Chapter One of Book Four Toilers of the Sea, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alison Veldes. Toilers of the Sea, Part Two Malicious Gilead by Victor Hugo. Translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book Four pitfalls in the way chapter one he who is hungry is not alone when he awakened he was hungry the sea was growing calmer but there was still a heavy swell which made his departure for the present at least impossible the day too was far advanced for the sloop with its burden to get to guernsey before midnight it was necessary to start in the morning Although pressed by hunger, Juliet began by stripping himself, the only means of getting warmth. His clothing was saturated by the storm, but the rain had washed out the sea-water, which rendered it possible to dry them. He kept nothing on but his trousers, which he turned up nearly to the knees. His overcoat, jacket, overalls, and sheepskin he spread out and fixed with large round stones here and there. Then he thought of eating. He had recourse to his knife, which he was careful to sharpen and to keep always in good condition, and he detached from the rock a few limpets, similar in kind to the clonices of the Mediterranean. It is well known that these are eaten raw, but after so many labours, so various and so rude, the pittance was meagre. His biscuit was gone, but of water he had now abundance. He took advantage of the receding tide to wander among the rocks in search of crayfish. There was extant enough of rock to hope for a successful search. But he had not reflected that he could do nothing with these without fire to cook them. If he had taken the trouble to go to his store cavern, he would have found it inundated with the rain. His wood and coal were drowned, and of his store of tow, which served him for tinder, there was not a fibre which was not saturated. No means remained of lighting a fire. For the rest, his blower was completely disorganized. The screen of the hearth of his forge was broken down. The storm had sacked and devastated his workshop. And with what tools and apparatus had escaped the general wreck, he could still have done carpentry work, but he could not have accomplished any of the labors of the smith. Gilliatt, however, never thought of his workshop for a moment. Drawn in another direction by the pangs of hunger, he had pursued without much reflection his search for food. He wandered, not in the gorge of the rocks, but outside among the smaller breakers. It was there that the Durand ten weeks previously had first struck upon the sunken reef. For the search that Gilliatt was prosecuting, this part was more favourable than the interior. At low water the crabs are accustomed to crawl out into the air. They seem to like to warm themselves in the sun, where they swarm sometimes to the disgust of loiterers, who recognize in these creatures, with their awkward sidelong gait, climbing clumsily from crack to crack, the lower stages of the rocks, like the steps of a staircase, a sort of sea vermin. For two months, Juliet had lived upon these vermin of the sea. On this day, however, the crayfish and crabs were both wanting. The tempest had driven them into their solitary retreats and they had not yet mustered courage to venture abroad. 
Gilliatt held his open knife in his hand, and from time to time scraped a cockle from under the bunches of seaweed, which he ate while still walking. He could not have been far from the very spot where Sieur Clubin had perished. As Gilliatt was determined to content himself with the sea urchins and the Chatinier de Mer, a little clattering noise at his feet aroused his attention. A large crab, startled by his approach, had just dropped into a pool. The water was shallow, and he did not lose sight of it. He chased the crab along the base of the rock. The crab moved fast. Suddenly it was gone. It had buried itself in some crevice under the rock. Gilliatt clutched the projections of the rock, and stretched out to observe where it shelved away under the water. As he suspected, there was an opening there in which the creature had evidently taken refuge. It was more than a crevice. It was a kind of porch. The sea entered beneath it, but was not deep. The bottom was visible, covered with large pebbles. The pebbles were green, and clothed in convervae, indicating that they were never dry. They were like the tops of a number of heads of infants, covered with a kind of green hair. Holding his knife between his teeth, Gilliatt descended by the help of feet and hands from the upper part of the escarpment and leapt into the water. It reached almost to his shoulders. He made his way through the porch and found himself in a blind passage with a roof in the form of a rude arch over his head. The walls were polished and slippery. The crab was nowhere visible. He gained his feet and advanced in daylight, growing fainter, so that he began to lose the power to distinguish objects. At about fifteen paces the vaulted roof ended overhead. He had penetrated beyond the blind passage. There was here more space, and consequently more daylight. The pupils of his eyes, moreover, had dilated, he could see pretty clearly. He was taken by surprise. He had made his way again into the singular cavern which he had visited in the previous month. The only difference was that he had entered by the way of the sea. It was through the submarine arch that he had remarked before, that he had just entered. At certain low tides it was accessible. His eyes became more accustomed to the place. His vision became clearer and clearer. He was astonished. He found himself again in that extraordinary palace of shadows, saw again before his eyes that vaulted roof, those columns, those purple and blood-like stains, that vegetation rich with gems, and at the farther end that crypt or sanctuary and that altar-like stone. He took little notice of these details, but their impression was in his mind, and he saw that the place was unchanged. He observed before him, at a certain height in the wall, the crevice through which he had penetrated the first time, and which, from the point where he now stood, appeared inaccessible. Near the moulded arch, he remarked those low dark grottos, sort of caves within a cavern, which he had already observed from a distance. He now stood nearer to them. The entrance to the nearest to him was out of the water and easily approachable. Nearer still than this recess he noticed, above the level of the water and within reach of his hand, a horizontal fissure. It seemed to him probable that the crab had taken refuge there, and he plunged his hand in as far as he was able, and groped about in that dusky aperture. Suddenly he felt himself seized by the arm. A strange, indescribable horror thrilled through him. Some living thing, thin, rough, 
flat, cold, slimy, had twisted itself round his naked arm in the dark depth below. It crept upwards towards his chest. Its pressure was like a tightening cord, its steady persistence like that of a screw. In less than a moment, some mysterious spiral form had passed round his wrist and elbow, and had reached his shoulder. A sharp point penetrated beneath the armpit. Gilliatt recoiled, but he had scarcely power to move. He was, as it were, nailed to the place. With his left hand, which was disengaged, he seized his knife, which he still held between his teeth, and with that hand holding the knife he supported himself against the rocks, while he made a desperate effort to withdraw his arm. He succeeded only in disturbing his persecutor, which wound itself still tighter. It was supple as leather, strong as steel, cold as night. A second form, sharp, elongated, and narrow, issued out of the crevice, like a tongue out of monstrous jaws. It seemed to lick his naked body. Then suddenly stretching out, it became longer and thinner as it crept over his skin and wound itself round him. At the same time, a terrible sense of pain, comparable to nothing he had ever known, compelled all his muscles to contract. He felt upon his skin a number of flat, rounded points. It seemed as if innumerable suckers had fastened to his flesh and were about to drink his blood. A third, long, undulating shape issued from the hole in the rock, seemed to feel its way about his body, lashed round his ribs like a cord, and fixed itself there. Agony, when at its height, is mute. Gilliatt uttered no cry. There was sufficient light for him to see the repulsive forms which had entangled themselves about him. A fourth ligature, but this one swift as an arrow, darted towards his stomach and wound around him there. It was impossible to sever or tear away the slimy bands which were twisted tightly round his body, and were adhering by a number of points. Each of the points was the focus of frightful and singular pangs. It was as if numberless small mouths were devouring him at the same time. A fifth long, slimy, ribbon-shaped strip issued from the hole. It passed over the others and wound itself tightly around his chest. The compression increased his sufferings. He could scarcely breathe. These living thongs were pointed at their extremities, but broadened like a blade of a sword towards its hilt. All belonged evidently to the same centre. They crept and glided about him, he felt the strange points of pressure, which seemed to him like mouths, change their place from time to time. Suddenly a large, round, flattened, glutinous mass issued from beneath the crevice. It was the centre. The five thongs were attached to it like spokes to the nave of a wheel. On the opposite side of this disgusting monster appeared the commencement of three other tentacles, the ends of which remained under the rock. In the middle of this slimy mass appeared two eyes. The eyes were fixed on Gilliatt. He recognized the devil fish. Chapter 2 The Monster It is difficult for those who have not seen it to believe in the existence of the devil fish. Compared to this creature, the ancient hydras are insignificant. 
At times we are tempted to imagine that the vague forms which float in our dreams may encounter in the realm of the possible attractive forces, having power to fix their lineaments and shape living beings, out of these creatures of our slumbers. The unknown has power over these strange visions, and out of them composes monsters. Orpheus, Homer, and Hesiod imagined only the chimera. Providence has created this terrible creature of the sea. Creation abounds in monstrous forms of life. The wherefore of this perplexes and affrights the religious thinker. If terror were the object of its creation, nothing could be imagined more perfect than the devilfish. The whale has enormous bulk. The devilfish is comparatively small. The jaracara makes a hissing noise. The devilfish is mute. The rhinoceros has a horn. The devilfish has none. The scorpion has a dart. The devilfish has no dart. The shark has sharp fins. The devilfish has no fins. The vespertilio bat has wings with claws. The devilfish has no wings. The porcupine has his spines. The devilfish has no spines. The swordfish has his sword. The devilfish has none. The torpedo has its electric spark. The devilfish has none. The toad has its poison. The devilfish has none. The viper has its venom. The devilfish has no venom. The lion has its talons. The devilfish has no talons. The griffin has its beak. The devilfish has no beak. The crocodile has its jaws. The devilfish has no teeth. The devilfish has no muscular organization, no menacing cry, no breastplate, no horn, no dart, no claw, no tail with which to hold or bruise, no cutting fins or wings with nails, no prickles, no sword, no electric discharge, no poison, no talons, no beak, no teeth. Yet he is of all creatures the most formidably armed. What, then, is the devilfish? It is the sea vampire. The swimmer who, attracted by the beauty of the spot, ventures among breakers in the open sea where the still waters hide the splendours of the deep, or in the hollows of unfrequented rocks, in unknown caverns abounding in sea-plants, testacea and crustacea, under the deep portals of the ocean, runs the risk of meeting it. If that fate should be yours, be not curious, but fly. The intruder enters there dazzled, but quits the spot in terror. This frightful apparition, which is always possible among the rocks in the open sea, is a greyish form which undulates in the water. It is of the thickness of a man's arm, and in length nearly five feet. Its outline is ragged. Its form resembles an umbrella closed, and without handle. This irregular mass advances slowly towards you. Suddenly it opens, and eight radii issue abruptly from around a face with two eyes. These radii are alive. Their undulation is like lambent flames. They resemble, when opened, the spokes of a wheel of four or five feet in diameter. A terrible expansion. It springs upon its prey. The devil-fish harpoons its victim. 
It winds around the sufferer, covering and entangling him in its long folds. Underneath it is yellow, above a dull earthy hue. Nothing could render that inexplicable shade dust-coloured. Its form is spider-like, but its tints are like those of the chameleon. When irritated, it becomes violet. Its most horrible characteristic is its softness. Its folds strangle. Its contact paralyzes. It has an aspect like gangrened or scabrous flesh. It is a monstrous embodiment of disease. It adheres closely to its prey and cannot be torn away, a fact which is due to its power of exhausting air. The eight antennae, large at their roots, diminish gradually and end in needle-like points. Underneath each of these feelers range two rows of pustules, decreasing in size, the largest ones near the head, the smaller at the extremities. Each row contains twenty-five of these. There are, therefore, fifty pustules to each feeler, and the creature possesses in the whole four hundred. These pustules are capable of acting like cupping-glasses. They are cartilaginous substances, cylindrical, horny, and livid. Upon the large species, they diminish gradually from the diameter of a five-franc piece to the size of a split pea. These small tubes can be thrust out and withdrawn by the animal at will. They are capable of piercing to a depth of more than an inch. This sucking apparatus has all the regularity and delicacy of a keyboard. It stands for that one moment and disappears the next. The most perfect sensitiveness cannot equal the contractibility of these suckers, always proportioned to the internal movement of the animal and its exterior circumstances. The monster is endowed with the qualities of the sensitive plant. This animal is the same as those which mariners call pulps, which science designates cephalopteri, and which ancient legends call krakens. It is the English sailors who call them devilfish, and sometimes bloodsuckers. In the Channel Islands they are called pieuvreaux. They are rare in Guernsey, very small at Jersey, but near the island of Sark are numerous, as well as very large. An engraving in Sonini's edition of Buffon represents a cephaloptera crushing a frigate. Denis Montfort, in fact, considers the pulp, or octopod, of high latitudes strong enough to destroy a ship. Bory St. Vincent doubts this, but he shows that in our regions they will attack men. Near Breck Ho, in Sark, they show a cave where a devilfish a few years since seized and drowned a lobster fisher. Perron and Lamarck are in error in their belief that the pulp, having no fins, cannot swim. He who writes these lines has seen with his own eyes at Sark, in the cavern called the Boutiques, a pieuvre swimming and pursuing a bather. When captured and killed, this specimen was found to be four English feet broad, and it was possible to count its four hundred suckers. The monster thrust them out convulsively in the agony of death. According to Denis Montfort, one of those observers, whose marvellous intuition sinks or raises them to the level of magicians, the pulp, is almost endowed with the passions of man. It has its hatreds. In fact, in the absolute, to be hideous is to hate. Hideousness struggles under the natural law of elimination, which necessarily renders it hostile. 
When swimming, the devilfish rests, so to speak, in its sheath. It swims with all its parts drawn close. It may be likened to a sleeve sewn up with a closed fist within. The protuberance, which is the head, pushes the water aside and advances with a vague undulatory movement. Its two eyes, though large, are indistinct, being of the colour of the water. When in ambush or seeking its prey, it retires into itself, grows smaller, and condenses itself. It is then scarcely distinguishable in the submarine twilight. At such times it looks like a mere ripple in the water. It resembles anything except a living creature. The devilfish is crafty. When its victim is unsuspicious, it opens suddenly. A glutinous mass endowed with a malignant will. What can be more horrible? It is in the most beautiful azure depths of the limpid water that this hideous, voracious polyp delights. It always conceals itself, a fact which increases its terrible associations. When they are seen, it is almost invariably after they have been captured. At night, however, and particularly in the hot season, it becomes phosphorescent. These horrible creatures have their passions, their submarine nuptials. Then it adorns itself, burns, and humans, and from the height of some rock it may be seen in the deep obscurity of the waves below, expanding with a pale irradiation, a spectral sun. The devilfish not only swims, it walks. It is partly fish, partly reptile. It crawls upon the bed of the sea. At these times it makes use of its eight feelers and creeps along in the fashion of a species of swift-moving caterpillar. It has no blood, no bones, no flesh. It is soft and flabby, a skin with nothing inside. Its eight tentacles may be turned inside out, like the fingers of a glove. It has a single orifice in the centre of its radii, which appears at first to be neither the vent nor the mouth. It is, in fact, both one and the other. The orifice performs a double function. The entire creature is cold. The jellyfish of the Mediterranean is repulsive. Contact with that animated gelatinous substance which envelops the bather, in which the hands sink and the nails scratch ineffectively, which can be torn without killing it, and which can be plucked off without entirely removing it, that fluid and yet tenacious creature which slips through the fingers is disgusting. But no horror can equal the sudden apparition of the devilfish, that Medusa with its eight serpents. No grasp is like the sudden strain of the cephaloptera. It is with the sucking apparatus that it attacks. The victim is oppressed by a vacuum drawing at numberless points. It is not a clawing or a biting, but an indescribable scarification. A tearing of the flesh is terrible, but less terrible than a sucking of the blood. Claws are harmless compared with the horrible action of these natural air cups. The talons of the wild beast enter into your flesh, but with the cephaloptera it is you who enter into the creature. The muscles swell, the fibres of the body are contorted, the skin cracks under the loathsome oppression, the blood spurts out and mingles horribly with the lymph of the monster, which clings to its victims by innumerable hideous mouths. The hydra incorporates itself with the man. The man becomes one with the hydra. The spectre lies upon you. The tiger can only devour you. The devilfish, horrible, sucks your life-blood away. He draws you to him and into himself, while bound down, 
glued to the ground, powerless, you feel yourself gradually emptied into this horrible pouch, which is the monster itself. These strange animals, science, in accordance with its habit of excessive caution even in the face of facts, at first rejects as fabulous, then she decides to observe them, then she dissects, classifies, catalogues, and labels, then procures specimens, and exhibits them in glass cases in museums. They enter then into her nomenclature, are designated mollusks, invertebrata, radiata. She determines their position in the animal world a little above the calamaris, a little below the cuttlefish. She finds for these hydras of the sea an analogous creature in fresh water called the Argyronect. She divides them into great, medium, and small kinds. She admits more readily the existence of the small than of the large species, which is, however, the tendency of science in all countries, for she is by nature more microscopic than telescopic. She regards them from the point of view of their construction and calls them cephaloptera, counts their antennae and calls them octopedes. This done, she leaves them. Where science drops them, philosophy takes them up. Philosophy, in her turn, studies these creatures. She goes both less far and further. She does not dissect, but meditate. Where the scalpel has laboured, she plunges the hypothesis. She seeks the final cause, eternal perplexity of the thinker. These creatures disturb his ideas of the Creator. They are hideous surprises. They are the death's head at the feast of contemplation. The philosopher determines their characteristics in dread. They are the concrete forms of evil. What attitude can he take towards this treason of creation against herself? To whom can he look for the solution of these riddles? The possible is a terrible matrix. Monsters are mysteries in their concrete form. Portions of shade issue from the mass, and something within detaches itself, rolls, floats, condenses, borrows elements from the ambient darkness, becomes subject to unknown polarizations, assumes a kind of life, furnishes itself with some unimagined form from the obscurity, and with some terrible spirit from the miasma, and wanders ghost-like among living things. It is as if night itself assumed the forms of animals, but for what good? With what object? Thus we come again to the eternal questioning. These animals are indeed phantoms as much as monsters. They are proved and yet improbable. Their fate is to exist in spite of our priori reasonings. They are the amphibia of the shore which separates life from death. Their unreality makes their existence puzzling. They touch the frontier of man's domain and people the region of chimeras. We deny the possibility of the vampire, and the cephaloptera appears. Their swarming is a certainty which disconcerts our confidence. Optimism, which is nevertheless in the right, becomes silenced in their presence. They form the visible extremity of the dark circles. They mark the transition of our reality into another. They seem to belong to that commencement of terrible life which the dreamer sees confusedly through the loophole of the night. That multiplication of monsters, first in the invisible, then in the possible, has been suspected, perhaps perceived by magi and philosophers in their austere ecstasies and profound contemplations. Hence the conjecture of a material hell. The demon is simply the invisible tiger. The wild beast which devours souls has been presented to the eyes of human beings by St. John, 
and by Dante in his vision of hell. If in truth the invisible circles of creation continue indefinitely, if after one there is yet another, and so forth an illimitable progression, if that chain which for our part we are resolved to doubt really exist, the sepulchre at one extremity proves Satan at the other. It is certain that the wrongdoer at one end proves the existence of wrong at the other. Every malignant creature, like every perverted intelligence, is a sphinx, a terrible sphinx propounding a terrible riddle, the riddle of the existence of evil. It is this perfection of evil which has sometimes sufficed to incline powerful intellects to a faith in the duality of the deity, towards that terrible bifrance of the Manichaeans. A piece of silk stolen during the last war from the palace of the Emperor of China represents a shark eating a crocodile, who is eating a serpent, who is devouring an eagle, who is preying on a swallow, who in his turn is eating a caterpillar. All nature which is under our observation is thus alternately devouring and devoured. Prey, prey on each other. Learned men, however, who are also philosophers, and therefore optimists in their view of creation, find or believe they find an explanation. Among others, Bonnet of Geneva, that mysterious exact thinker who was opposed to Buffon, as in later times Geoffrey, St. Hilaire, has been to Cuvier, was struck with the idea of the final object. His notions may be summed up thus. Universal death necessitates universal sepulture. The devourers are the sextons of the system of nature. All created things enter into and form the elements of other. To decay is to nourish. Such is the terrible law from which not even man himself escapes. In our world of twilight, this fatal order of things produces monsters. You ask for what purpose? We find the solution here. But is this the solution? Is this the answer to our questionings? And if so, why not some different order of things? Thus the question returns. Let us live, be it so. But let us endeavour that death shall be progress. Let us aspire to an existence in which these mysteries shall be made clear. Let us follow that conscience which leads us thither. For let us never forget that the highest is only attained through the high. End of chapter 2